So he says, quote, But now, for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us? That your mothers are just as anxious as ours? And that we have the same fear of death and the same dying and same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? Welcome, friends, to episode 265 of the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Eric Maria Remarque's 1928 novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh boy, what a what a book this is, James. Uh, we haven't done, we were just talking about this, we haven't done like a, a really serious episode in a while, and this material is very serious, um, so it'll be interesting trying to like shift gears into that yeah i mean we've covered stuff just as heavy as as this in the past so it's been a while but it, has, though, right? it has been a little while <laughs> you know i think we'll, we'll find our way into it yeah this book is really somber and like you know Very. this experience of kind of reevaluating what led to it what it was like experiences boots on the ground kind of stuff and then ramifications i don't know when this was written but like how it may have even predicted and been seeing how some of the the soldiers would come back from this kind of stuff. And I mean, I have details on all of that we'll get into when we get into biography and and background. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my main my main thing I'm walking away with right now is is like this overwhelming sense of the tragedy, but also there's some beauty and humanity in the story that was unexpected. This this is a book that kind of wags the finger to me at anything that sort of glorifies war and violence. This is this is that response that is I think responsible and and I you know is needed and I hadn't read it so it was cool to cool to experience it and I know it's something that a lot of people read in school. Yeah, I I believe a lot I knew a lot of people who read this book in school but it wasn't one that I had assigned. I was honestly stunned by this book it was written in 1928 and yet it feels so modern to me in many ways it's it's unflinching in its descriptions of the violence on the battlefield that these uh, men went through and i think it's got some pretty clear aims when you sort of analyze it in the sense that it is trying to be the anti-war book in the sense that it's not glorifying it's not nationalist it's not talking about how great the germans were and how great the war effort was and it's not act about acts of heroism it's about the senseless brutality and violence that uh war in general and and specifically this war became sort of known for um and the reality that the men in the trenches faced which i i don't think i've ever seen or read something as visceral as this book. Um, it really put you in those trenches and made you understand the absolute horror in a way that I didn't think anyone was doing 
in the 20s. It made me reevaluate World War One, And, you know, it's called the lost generation, but the, the people who fought that generation that fought. But it made me really reevaluate my thoughts on what it was like. Specifically, the preface of the book says this book is neither an accusation nor a confession. And least of all, an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. I mean, this book goes so deep into the psyche and the PTSD that was commonly called shell shock at the time that these men went through and how affected they were, even those who survived how uh, how just destroyed their lives often were by their experiences there. It's like no one got out of that unscathed, Yeah, um, just how horrific it was. This generation of people who joined into this cause for nationalism reasons, right? And, and you know, nationalism continues to be something that we see today and in World War II. And totally. seeing nationalism be the reason why people join up and seeing these young men realize as they're there that they're not there for patriotism, they're there for different reasons. And then the the thing that really clicked for me in reading about this specific war was it's so removed. It's not this like hand-to-hand combat or kind of seeing the combatant that you're fighting that that war had been for centuries yeah. and millennia. And it's, it's this like removed kind of, and it dehumanizes the enemy in ways, and, and you're so much more afraid of the technology than you are of the, the specific enemy. Um, and just the way that these young men would go, and they're like, you know, 18 and below and above, and they don't have the experiences to lean on. And and this is this is what their world becomes and what their their frame of reference on life is. Yeah. He does, there was a really good line, I, I didn't write it down specifically, but where he was talking about specifically how they were so young that they hadn't lived yet. Like their whole lives had just been like school and then this. And this is their, becomes their definition of like what life is at such a foundational age. Totally. And some of the older soldiers have families and wives and they've lived a life. They've had jobs and they know they have that as a frame of reference for what life can be like and what they're fighting for. And these guys are just fighting for each other because that's all that they know. They know their family is there, but it's tainted for them because they can't go back and just live that peaceful lifestyle anymore. So this this does become like like that quote said, millions of people died. Right. And of these millions, some people came back. And those people who came back, could, it, would just, it would just have been so hard to reintegrate into society. And, to, and, and you know, I'm, that's the case for all war, right? Like all soldiers who come back for war, from war. I found the quote. Uh, I think this is the one I was looking at here. We are not youth any longer. We don't want to take the world by storm. We are fleeing. We fly from ourselves, from our life. We are 18 and had begun to love life and the world, and we had to shoot it to pieces. That just also comes back to like this book is so beautifully written i i was struck by just how poetic it can often be how profound i mean it was it was so rich that i felt like i could have taken a month to read the book instead of a few days like i did because our shortened sort of time frame because like i could have just kept reading lines over and over again because there's so much depth to them right they're almost like little stanzas of poetry um and that can be, I think, exhausting for some people. But like, I didn't find that with this. Like, I felt like it it still moved along at like a good pace. It has a discernible story structure. 
that I think lends itself well to the purpose of the narrative he's constructing, even as you can tell he's wrestling with trying to represent the reality of the situation, right? Um, and that gets into like what is kind of tricky about this book is that it is both fiction and, of course, largely nonfiction um, in the sense that the things that are being described are true, even if the individuals may be invented. Um, and that's why it kind of is tricky to talk about. Um, this also reminds me of another book that is one of my favorite novels of all time um, and definitely my favorite war novel I've ever read. Although this honestly is is giving it a run for its money. That's Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Um, and that book is about uh, Vietnam. It's a very similar in the sense that it feels like an anti-war book that is trying to analyze what even it means to write about war and how can you do it without glorifying it. And it struggles with a lot of that. And But I could see a lot of similar sort of narrative DNA um, between both books, which are both considered fiction, even though Tim O'Brien did fight in Vietnam and it was kind of a fictionalized account of his real experiences. Yeah. You mentioned before, like, the, the there's humanity here. And that's honestly what sticks out to me in the book. You know, there's the horrors of war and there's, there's, there's trench warfare. There's, like, you know, unimaginable things that they have to go through and see their, their friends and comrades go through. But the moments that I think are meant to shine in this are the moments of getting to escape from that and getting to have some sense of normalcy, whether it's a, a good meal, even, you know, meeting women that, that they meet and like they're, they're going back home. And but there's this interesting thing that happens even when they do go back home is it's always like the subtext of this is temporary. The food is temporary. All the things that they go through are like they're they're fleeting, but they're like very meaningful. And the way that they kind of they put their hope into these things, that's all that they can really lean on and the things that they care about. Um, and as the story progresses, like, you know, we see these brutal things happen to, to everyone. And the reveal for me, which I won't spoil here, but just the reveal of the title of the of the novel and what it's about and, and how it's contextualized in the story really like it was a it was a gut punch you know yeah which is saying something for this book which is just full of gut punches yeah and th but there was something about the naivete that was here with like why the war was being fought and the way that it was affecting these young people who didn't ask for this and and were kind of almost baited into it and then ultimately like what happens to this pretty much entire generation of people so to circle back to what you were saying about the moments of sort of peace that they were able to find. I agree. Those were, you know, profound and they were like a um, kind of a relief to me as a reader too, because you would read like long sections from um, then on the front and it would be just brutality nonstop and you'd finally like get to breathe. But these were also the moments where we got to see the characters try to process what they'd been through in any way. And then also there was this distance that he talks about where he can't connect with people like the people who weren't there just don't know and he can't tell them and he doesn't want to tell them because like talking about it gives it power over him. And so he decides not to talk about it. Um, but yeah, even when he goes home, he feels like he doesn't belong there anymore. And when he's with even when that moment where he's with those women, I think it ends with one of them. Um, kind of he 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 guesses that she's not as interested in him after he's going to leave because she seems to be kind of interested in soldiers in general and that kind of rubs him the wrong way so there, there's a lot of this like weird attitude around war for those who don't fight in it 
And whenever he comes up against that, that always, you know, makes him feel pretty awful and, and, and distant from them. Um, but there's also these moments of beautiful writing about the landscapes and environment. Um, and then there's like moments where he sees butterflies on the battlefield and there's like, you know, looking out at the mountains and thinking about being under the trees and how like, it seems like when he's truly trying to imagine what peace might be like if it was attainable, usually there's a path through or connecting to the earth and to the environment um, that I was detecting where it really felt like that, that call to like a pastoral life or something. And you can see why that is appealing to a lot of um, people at the time. And yeah, I think about J.R.R. Tolkien who fought in World War I and how that's a big theme through a lot of the Lord of the Rings, right? And how the, you know, the, the fighting on the front was so mechanized and there was machine guns. And then there's a part where he talks about the tanks when they got introduced and how horrifying they were and gas and all this stuff that is so unnatural and industrial and how, I can see why you would look to nature and just see like peace and like uh, the way that life should be versus this horror that you're seeing. Yeah. I mean, we see like animals, how animals are treated throughout the story as well. And it's juxtaposing the two, right? That's unnatural thing that we shouldn't be this conflict we're in that we shouldn't be in that we as human beings are doing to the earth and to, you know, animals and these countries and this, these histories and it's this senseless, like this, like I said, the the thing that's sticking with me too, and that the differentiates World War One from many other wars is the trench warfare, and just how yeah. it's so removed, and and it's emphasized that they're not fighting for pieces of land. They're just it's a war of attrition. They're just trying to kill each other as much as possible, and whether that's from grenades or you know shell fire, whatever yeah. it is, Gosh. it's you you have Constant no sense shelling. of. You have no sense of relief. You can't sleep in there. There's rats. It's getting flooded. They're fighting for other trenches and stuff. And and it just, it's it sounds horrific. And it is horrific. I thought it was really interesting that it, it seems to me that he made a deliberate choice to not really engage with the tactical side of things. There was no real description of like, this was the objective. And like, this is what we were trying to do. And we we won this victory here. And we were able to get this territory. It was just like, indiscriminate the fight was always going on sometimes they'd advance sometimes they'd fall back it was like it always seemed disconnected from any purpose and i'm sure that's all deliberate because like ultimately it is like it doesn't matter if you advance a little bit and then you have to get you get pushed back other than all the people who die in the process of doing that but like ultimately it didn't matter you know and like he doesn't get into specific battles um it seemed like he was avoiding that um so i really feel like this book has a clarity of purpose and and, and um, it's really fascinating for me when I was reading about how he would talk about this book and how he kind of considered it and considered himself. Um, and of course, like the reaction to this book uh, was also notable. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess before we get into that, just I, I recommend this book for people. Um, it is definitely brutal, um, but like, I think important uh, it's it's I really enjoyed the book in, in like a, in the sense of like I'm glad I read it. Um, I found it very profound, and again, like I was I was sort of surprised by how accessible I found it, even though it's you know almost a hundred years old now. Totally agree. I I recommend it, and honestly, I want to give props to whoever had the foresight to have students read this, have people read this, because I think that this idea of nationalism that, that this comes back to 
it's important to contextualize this because a lot of people get into war for the wrong reasons. This glory, you want to be a hero. There's all of these things that get wrapped up in it. And I, in our generation, in the previous generation from us, I've seen that, you know, I've seen people, they, they see that as a way to, to make their, give their lives meaning in some ways. And I understand that like people going and in the, into the services of sacrifice and it's one that, that is needed, but this kind of book exists and ha- and I think it's important that high schoolers read it because it gives you that frame of reference. It's like, it's not what it's chopped up to be. It's not going to be medals and glory and coming home and nothing's going to be off and you'll just be seen. It, it's, it's, you'll be seen as a hero, but you will be forever changed. And that's the idea uh, that if you do see combat like this, specifically this kind of story being, being told where it, it highlights how all they want is to return to their former lives and get out with their friends that they've met and the things that are important to them in life. Um, I think that that's a really good message to, to give to people. And it reminds generations that since we haven't had a war in X period of years, it doesn't mean that war gets any less horrific. It just, it just means that like you yourself haven't experienced it and you don't have to go through the same things that a past generation did um, to, to get some sense of a place in the world. Like there's, there's many other reasons and, and things to do. And specifically Paul was like a poet and he, he did all this writing outside of before the war and, and many other people had, had goals and things that they wanted. But once they were wrapped up in the war and they started talking to each other, like, what do you want to do when you get out? Because they had none of that frame of reference. They were all like, I want to eat a good meal. I want to meet a woman. I want to, you know, get back at my drill sergeant, all things that centered back on the war and how it's just, it's this unfortunate thing that as time goes on, we seem to forget how horrific these things can get. And people are, get really gung-ho and politicians and everybody gets really gung-ho about war for the sake of this or that. And people get wrapped up in things that aren't in their best interest and support supporting war. Just, it, it seems like the, I don't know, in, in general, the idea of like, we need to go to war with somebody is, is, in my opinion, one of the most unnatural things you can think. Yeah, man, it's such a huge topic and it's so fraught. Um, of course, there are a lot of people who've had their lives enriched by military service, right? Like, uh, you know, and, and that's a part of their identities and they wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and I don't want to, like, disparage that um, because, of course, it's also, like you said, like it is necessary and it's a complex world. And I feel like, you know, military, having a military, especially for a country as large and wealthy as the United States, it makes sense to have a standing military that has a lot of, you know, has a lot of power and has a lot of money put into it. But, you know, there are all kinds of degrees that we can talk about and we can talk about, you know, what's reasonable and what's unreasonable and what's what's fetishizing warfare versus what's treating it with the sort of solemnity and and respect that it deserves. And this book does a great job of, I think, showing that when war gets to this level all out kill each other on the bed you know it's like this is so horrific that we all need to understand the reality of it so that we can avoid it from happening this this honestly shouldn't happen and unfortunately that it does um and you you can look at like the war in ukraine right now um, you know, Russians, Russia's war, war on Ukraine. And you can see that there are horrors occurring there every day, um, you know, as we speak. And we hear a lot more about them now than they did back then. So I think that also just highlights how important this book was for its time because it was it was unique in that sense and that it was trying to highlight things that were 
hidden from the general public and and they were sold a a tale about the war that was all about you know the glory of the country and the victories and how all the you know soldiers are in great spirits and and all that stuff that he sort of makes fun of in the book or, or at least like propaganda calls it propaganda exactly i agree i think this is a book um and i would throw in the things they carried as books that i think anybody who's considering military service should read um not to not necessarily to say that i want to discourage them from doing so but so they can go in with their eyes open and understand like what can happen um because i think you know it's good to have that perspective um and and you know understand the reality of what you might be asked to do i also would argue that i i almost feel like it should be mandatory as mandatory reading to be a politician to, you (laughs) know what I mean? To to understand what you're sending other, but I guess that gets down to like your level of humanity too and how much you, your empathy and how much you care about your fellow man. You know, there's a lot of politicians who wouldn't give a shit if they read this. (laughs) Yeah. Which just, that, that bothers me and that, again, that's unnatural and it hurts, it hurts my soul to think that there's people who are like, they would not be willing to admit how little they're willing to send people into situations like this or how willing they're sent to send themselves like they would never do this but they're they're willing to send others right exactly but but and specifically the reasoning too i think it you know if people contextualize everything and thought like we're sending these people to deal with this because of oil or yeah. you know other <laughs> other things yeah. it just it starts to yeah it's it's fucking wild but also like i think it shows like if a country or a person usually in charge of a country initiates a war it's important to look at something like this to like show the gravity of that choice and again we can point to the war in ukraine right now right like putin's war on ukraine yep. and what what are those soldiers fighting for and we've seen footage of russian soldiers like not wanting to be there anymore right. and not wanting to fight in that war yeah, but it's this. I, maybe it's wrapped up in nationalism. Maybe it's wrapped up in pressure from powers that be. And of course, like the Ukrainians, I, you know, I I I praise them for defending their country. So like, Absolutely, it's not like yeah. to say like you you can't like they're part they're in a war, but it just wasn't a war they chose. Um, sure. And and I think that is a reality that often happens. And of course, we can look later at World War Two, which has very complex morality involved with that, and like you know, stopping what was going on. Um, at the time. So there's a lot of complex reasons to go to war and it's too much for this podcast to get into. I just think that it's good for people to recognize the reality of what we could be asking our young people to do, because usually it is going to be those 18 to 21 year olds who are on the front lines dying the most of anybody. Um, and they're sent there by people who are not going to fight in the war. And that's just, you know, that's been the way that wars have been fought going back to here. And, and you know, honestly, throughout most of time. Yeah. And I do think it's good to for I'm sure everyone's very aware because this is something you learn about in school, I hope. But World War One was originally called the Great War and it was seen as a war to end all wars. And yep. and after the atrocities, like there was a generation that was like understood it, you know, the ones who were involved in it and the ones who directly dealt with it. And then, as I said, time goes by and things change and we enter another world war. And that yeah. just like how that it feels like this inevitability that humans will be in conflict and and how tragic that can be and and yeah it feels that way sometimes for sure it's again nationalism from the the german side yeah it's, uh, that, that it and comes up again that, that's and, a good um actually a good segue into talking about what what went on with this book the history of it and and uh, eric uh, maria remarked too so let's talk about the author first and then we'll get into the the publication history but 
Uh, Eric Maria Remarque was born Eric Paul Remarque in, uh, on June 22nd of 1898. Uh, he was a German-born novelist. His landmark novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, based on his experience in the Imperial German Army during World War I, was an international bestseller, which created a new literary genre and was adapted into film several times. Um, so in his early life, he was raised in a working-class Roman Catholic fan, uh, family. Uh, I think he was the third of four children. Went to school in Germany and was later conscripted into the Imperial German Army at the age of 18. June 12th of 1917, he was transferred to the Western Front, 2nd Company, Reserves Field Depot of the 2nd Guards Reserves Division. Um, on June 26th of 1917, he was posted to the 15th Reserve Infantry, 2nd Company, Engineer Platoon, um, and he fought in the trenches between Turnhout and Hothelst. I'm probably mispronouncing those. July 31st, 1917, he was wounded by a shell shrapnel in his left leg, right arm, and neck, and after being medically evacuated from the field, was repatriated to an army hospital in Germany, where he recovered from his wounds. Uh, in October of 1918, he was recalled to military service, but the war's armistice a month later put an end to his military career. So, got wounded on the front lines, went to a hospital where he recovered for many long months, and then I read that he served as an orderly in the hospital and helping out other uh, soldiers. And this is when he said he began conceiving of this novel. It wouldn't be until about 10 years later that he would actually write it, but he started conceiving this novel about wanting to write a novel about his experience in the war. And he went around to different soldiers and got a lot of their personal stories about what they experienced on the front. So while in the hospital, he would go around talking to them and gathering, you know, true accounts of, of what they'd experienced. And I think we could see a lot of this in the book, right? There's a lot of hospital scenes. And um, I think that that shows also that like, he's trying to write this book to not just be his perspective, which was significant, but also, you know, fairly limited to one person. Whereas I think he's really trying to gasp, uh, capture a larger swath with his story. Uh, I mean, you could say he's trying to speak for the the whole generation that was involved in the conflict too, you know, the, 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 that did lost their voices in this. Um, totally. I, that This does bring up another great point is that I love that this book, and I completely unexpected, it's not just the front. I kind of expected it to just be the battlefield, but we get to see the home life of a, of a German returning home. We get to see the, the hospitalizations yeah. and we get to see a lot of different, like the training, like sort of background at, at times. So getting to see like all aspe aspects of this war and, and the way it all built up, I thought was, was a really cool way to flesh it out and make it all feel like we understood the conflict from many different angles rather than just what it's like to be in trench warfare. Yeah. And man, like the idea of as horrifying as it is to be on the front, I, I found a lot of the hospital scenes equally horrifying to know that yeah. we're in a hospital with major injuries off of the, as dirty and filthy a place as the front would be and a time before penicillin. There was no antibiotics. This is this was a horrifying time to be injured. Um, well, they said, you know, most people died from infection. Most people died. I mean, it. It's, it's hard for us to even fathom what that would have been like today because we're so used to modern medicine, right? Like, yeah. And, and just the level to, you know, there's a doctor at one point that's, that is like approached because one of Paul's friends is in fatal situation and he's basically going to die. And the, the doctor or maybe the nurse 
he just says, you know, it's our 16th one today. Like, what do you want us to do, basically? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, what can they do? Like, basically, they can chop off limbs, and that's what they did a lot of. And that often led to people dying. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's also showing how you have to almost, like, shut off certain filters in your brain while on the battlefield and in the hospitals. The totally. doctors are having to do the same thing. And you're just losing that sense of, like, empathy and humanity where you have to, like, switch it over just to function correctly and survive and... Right. You know, that's it's bleak. So back to him. Um, after coming back from the war, the atrocities of war, along with his mother's death, caused him a great deal of mental trauma and grief. In later years, as a professional professional writer, he started using Maria as his middle name instead of Paul to commemorate to commemorate his mother. Uh, when he published All Quiet on the Western Front, he had his surname reverted to an earlier spelling from remark spelled with a K to remark spelled with a Q-U-E to disassociate himself from his uh, earlier novel, which was called The Dream Room, published in 1920. So he did publish a novel right away after he got back from the war, but um, he, he decided to sort of separate himself when he put out this book. So All Quiet on the Western Front, his career-defining work, was written in 1927. He was at first unable to find a publisher for it, but on publication, it became an international bestseller and a landmark work in 20th century literature and inspired a new genre of veterans writing about conflict and the commercial publication of a wide variety of war memoirs. It also inspired dramatic representations of the war in theater and cinema, in Germany, as well in the countries that had fought in the conflict against the German Empire, particularly the United Kingdom and the United States. So it was very successful from its launch, and it, it's pretty striking that it like sort of paved the way for a lot of war memoirs to be written and published. Um, so I think that's that's like a sign of just how big this book was. I mean, when I think about and favorite war movie or story is a weird thing, obviously to have, but everybody's seen seen them. And I think about the ones that affect me the most, and that they tend to follow in the same vein. They tend to be the ones that are more introspective and thinking about uh, the track. They don't, doesn't tend to. My point is, it doesn't tend to be the glorified yeah. action. If if you ever, in my opinion, if you ever watch a war movie or story, and you get the sense that you're being sold that that this may have been tragic, but it was, you know, all all for the right reason. And like, ultimately, it's a good thing that this happened. Like, I, yeah, I agree. I think that's I think that's always the wrong message to take away. Um, and I am skeptical of anybody who's portraying it that way, because that starts to get into sort of a propaganda ish territory for me. He would move to Switzerland um, in, I think, the 1931 that thereabouts. Um, and then in 1933, at the, at the initiative of the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, Remarque's writing was publicly declared, quote, unpatriotic and was banned in Germany. Copies were removed from all libraries and restricted from being sold or published anywhere in the country. They held wide uh, book burnings where they would all gather around. This was one of the most banned, burned books um, leading up to uh, World War II. And you can see why, because this was not something that you wanted you know, people reading if you were trying to, you know, drum up totalitarian nationalist fervor in a country. And that's what the Nazis were doing. So um, to me, that's just a, that's just a sign that he was doing something right here and that he, his book was was so broadly uh, banned in the country. The practice of banning books is one that um, we're actively talking about today. Yeah. And uh, so that's feels very close to me now. And and. I just I can't fathom the idea of being afraid of information and being afraid of 
different viewpoints in this way like it was labeled this degenerate work too um which like i know it was part it was widely being said like oh it was it was anti-german and that's why it was being banned but also like i guarantee there was this idea that it was like too explicit that it was you know not proper like we shouldn't be reading about something like this this is too you know and and gosh we just see that right like it's an excuse to get things off the shelves that you know criticize something that you know a, a political party doesn't agree with <laughs> or or introduces ideas that you know they don't agree with and the choice to ban books is always political and um of course it's like they cast it as like a oh we're banning it because it's it the book is political so it's just so gross and i just it's, it's a yeah. huge red flag for not only like nationalism propaganda being machine beginning but you know uh fascism it's a it's a flag for fascism starting to roll in so <sighs> you start limiting ideas and saying what people can and can't read yeah that's uh that's not, you're on your well on your way something to keep an eye out for everyone listening yeah we should all be paying attention to this um so remark Interestingly, I was reading how he always claimed to be apolitical. He said his book wasn't political. He remained staunchly, quote, apolitical throughout his life. Um, but of course, you can see this book was not viewed as apolitical in any stretch. Um, it was used by people all over the political spectrum to try and cast him in a certain light. And I think his choice to say he was apolitical was a defense mechanism to try and resist being sort of pigeonholed as a pacifist or, you know, a communist or who knows what, like he was, he got labeled all sorts of different things. Um, and depending on like who was talking and talking about the book. So he, I think he was really trying to like keep as much of that off of the book as possible and let it sort of speak for itself, which of course is sort of a political stance and that it's anti-war, um, which if you're, you know, a nationalist pro-war sort of, uh, group you're going to see this as a political book but um i think that's interesting right like i i don't personally like the excuse of like oh i don't want to get drawn into the fray so i'm going to kind of remain apolitical obviously we don't do that on this podcast could also i mean thinking of the era too could have been a safety thing for him yeah. you know it could have been a move for his own safety and i don't know the end of the story so i hope that he gets out of germany because i'm sure he was a target so he he, he um, initially moved to switzerland um i, I think at this, during the start of the war but did eventually um come to america um or he would go on to sort of enjoy success for his writings um, he ended up dating. So like he had this marriage that was like unfaithful on both sides. He got a divorce from the woman. Then he moved to Switzerland. They ended up getting married again, something to do with like becoming uh, a citizen, I think for Switzerland. But then they ended up divorcing again later, I think in America. Um, and during this time, he apparently had a bunch of affairs with a bunch of like famous actresses. Um, I read, uh, let's see, if, I, I think some of these names sound familiar to me. So yeah, during the um, 1930s, he had relationships with Austrian ac actress Heidi Lamar, Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio, and German actress Marlene Dietrich. Yeah, Marlene Dietrich. Which definitely she's a very famous name, right? Yeah. Um, he was involved with all of them. He also then would re remarry actress Paulette Goddard in 1958, and that would be who he was married with when he uh, married to when he died. So dated a bunch of different actresses. Um, Apparently was kind of a ladies man in that way. Um, 
and that it, that also sort of drew criticism as people looked at him and said, oh, you're just trying to get rich off of this. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. Look how well you're doing. Look at the people you're hanging out with. So that was always a criticism that people would also level at him, um, even as he maintained that he didn't write the book for that reason. Exactly. And that's the thing, right? Like, it doesn't matter. The, the work can't stand on its own, right? It has to be because it's such a big target because of the messaging. They're like, we have to tear this this person's credibility down in any way we can. So one so. thing I also read that um, I was a little disappointed, honestly, um, there are two major translations to this book in, into English. The first one is by Arthur Wesley Ween. Um, and I looked on my copy of the book. That's the copy I have. It's also the copy or it's also the translation that was for the audiobook that I listened to at times, um, both off of this Ween version. So apparently this uh, original version, which was, I think, the 19, like the 1930s version as it was getting translated into English, um, has been the one that has standed the test of time and clearly is the one that I still encountered. So in 1993, there was a translation done by Brian Murdoch, um, and it was supposed to be more faithful to the original German. Um, he, de- he describes Wien's translation as uh, anglicizing some lesser, lesser known German references and um, that Wien made some decisions to lessen the impact of certain passages while omitting others entirely. So it, Murdoch's translation is considered more accurate to the original text and completely unexpurgated. Looking at my copy here, it looks like I read the Murdoch version. So what I'm jealous, man. I, I wonder, I, I'm curious, like what parts were different? Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't see that in my research, but um, I'm kind of bummed now, right? Like I, I thought this, I thought it was very good and I, and I, I was sort of impressed with the translation. So um, I didn't have complaints about it, but when I read that stuff may have been omitted or changed to lessen the impact, I don't like that. Like that, that yeah. bothers me. So that's a um, bummer. Well, at least we know now that we can recommend, right? You know, the the more yeah. true version. If you can find the Murdoch version, I guess that's the way to go. Um, although I will say the Ween version, I thought was very good. Um, I thought it was still very good. So interestingly, there was this 1930 adaptation that got made. Um, and so in 1930, screenings of the Academy Award-winning film that was based on the book were met with Nazi-organized protests and mob attacks on both movie theaters and audience members. I have heard about this, yeah. The reputation that I was aware of wasn't about the book necessarily because I hadn't read it in school or anything like that. But I had heard when the, the, that film was coming out and the fact that it won an Academy Award, it was very widely acclaimed. So there's, we'll definitely have to cover that at some point as well. Yeah. Uh, that that is I, to me sounds right for a bonus episode to honestly go back and watch that original. I want to see what the Nazis were protesting, man. It sounds like sounds like good stuff to sounds me. Sounds like it's worth watching. Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, it, it, unsurprisingly, a lot of my other notes are just about how much the Nazis hated this book and tried to get it, you know, stricken from all record and public consciousness. Um, was there specifics about like, you know, it was one of the first books that they held public burnings of. It was, you know, they the, the movie itself was banned. And, you know, again, like, you know, mobs and riots and beatings and all kinds of stuff. And it's an attempt to suppress it. And you know what that tends to do also, right? When when people push this hard is that more readers come to this kind of material. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Up to a certain point, right? Um, it was probably was very hard to find in Germany at a certain point too, though. So in some sense, it might have been effective. But um, there was other objections to his portrayal of the German uh, soldiers and of specifically the doctors, because um, he it was said that he described them as being inattentive, uncaring, or absent from frontline action. 
um, and and how this was sort of they saw it as perpetuating the stereotype of like the uncaring, cold German doctor. Um, of course, it's you know darkly ironic considering how horrific a lot of the um, you know medical experiments that would go on later after this book's publication. So like you could see maybe there was some truth to the way he was describing some of these German doctors. Not to say they all were. I'm sure there were a lot of heroic, you know, you know, empathetic great doctors out there but you know there may there very well may have been some who were just looking to like do experiments and publish a paper and get a you know get a claim for themselves and not really caring about the people they were working on specifically like some people who were put in positions of power at some of the concentration camps and things like that for sure in world war ii oh absolutely um, yeah there was a line that basically was saying that some of the german soldiers were like kind of worried that there was a, some experimentation going on and that kind of thing like there was this this i i forget which character was saying it but um that was kind of their fear is they were like oh man there's so much death and screaming and everything around them that they kind of built up this horror like this horror uh entity of like a doctor who's experimenting on all these soldiers and in that way kind of prophetic because there eventually would be german doctors that were doing that kind of stuff totally man but let's get into the um, plot summary. That way we can talk about specifics in the book here. Um, the book centers on Paul Boimer, a German soldier on the Western Front during World War I. At the start of the book, Paul lives with his parents and sister in a charming German village. He attends school where the patriotic speeches of his teacher, Kantarek, lead the whole class to volunteer for the Imperial German Army shortly after the start of the Great War. Boimer arrives at the Western Front with his friends and schoolmates, Lear, Mueller, Krupp, Kemerek and a number of other characters. There they meet Stanislaus Kaczynski, an older soldier named Kat, who becomes Paul's mentor. While fighting at the front, Boimer and his comrades engage in frequent battles and endure the treacherous and filthy conditions of trench warfare. The battles fought here have no names and seem to have little overall significance, except for the impending possibility of injury or death. Only meager pieces of land are gained, which are often lost again later. Remark often refers to the living soldiers as old and dead, emotionally drained and shaken. This book is so modern in the sense that it is like looking at mental health. Like mental health is like front and center. As much as physical health and the tra and the physical trauma they go through, so much of this book is is like centered on the the horrific trauma that these men mentally faced. Um, and so it starts off the book with this, like he's going to school and he hears this like nationalist propaganda from his teacher sort of convinces them all to join up. And they immediately like they get like six months of training. And then he talks about how they have this like I think his name's like Hemrick, this awful drill instructor who is like abusive. And they they end up like actually beating him and uh, and like getting some retribution on him. Um, but their whole life becomes about like trying to survive under this guy who is, you know, abusing power. Um, but he also talks about how they're being turned into like cogs of the machine and how individuality is gone and it's replaced with like regimen and rules and, you know, obeying authority and how um, the sense of like pers like being an individual is just like completely lost. I thought that it was notable too. like he at some point acknowledges like maybe that's why they survived as long as they did is the, the awful treatment they got from this guy. He does give that credit eventually. He's like, yeah, as, as bad as he was, I have to say we would have gone mad without without the training we got. So, I mean, that does show that, that maybe sort of a mixed <laughs> mixed feelings about it. I assume this is sort of reflects something that that Eric uh, uh, really went through. 
And it also is brought up that this this character is kind of a coward and is kind of like was a mailman. You're talking about and the, the postman. Yeah, yeah. He's the, the postman. Yeah. The drill sergeant type character. I don't think he's called a drill sergeant because I don't think that's what they're called in the German army. But yeah, that's basically what he is. But anyway, so he he gets given this sliver of power and this whole conversation, this whole, I guess, internal monologue happens about humans and how power sort of corrupts you know absolute power corrupts absolutely that is being shown like okay this character is given a little bit of power abuses it and then somehow helps these by by sheer luck i guess helps these people i guess i was trying to to land on where the the author was with this character obviously can like conflicted both good and bad well because we see what happens with him later later he ends up joining the front and they all kind of hate him but he kind of redeems himself. But then he doesn't again. He remember he's cowering in the hole or whatever when all the yeah. other soldiers. But I mean, everybody does, like, honestly, like the yeah. idea of like being brave on the front is like kind of laughable. They even say like, you know, it happens to everybody. Uh, well, the way that it's framed, though, is like all the y- new young recruits that don't know any better are up there and he's hiding in a hole. And then eventually Paul has to like shove him up onto the Paul is yeah. frustrated with him when he finds him. He's like, get up, you know, you know, he definitely you're right. And like. But again, he does still kind of get redeemed after this, like because um, at one point I think he gets injured, like he does actually do something semi brave and or, I mean, it's obviously clearly brave, but like, yeah, relative to like the other sort of acts of bravery that we're seeing. Yeah. And I think it comes back down to like, there's no good and evil out here. It's like it's about like being humans and like everyone does what they do. But ultimately, we're all humans and, and everybody deserves a certain level of dignity at the end of the day. So speaking of that, like the first real uh, example we get of some of the horrors of war is through this um, their friend who gets who gets um, his leg amputated and he's in the hospital and they're all going to visit visit him. And Mueller, um, I think it is, immediately starts eyeing his boots and he's like, you know, when he dies, I'm, I, I want to get those boots. But it's like not a it's not in like a cold way. It's like they're not like they're just going to like give those to somebody else. Why shouldn't they go to, you know, us as friends? I need them. It is cold. That's the point, though. It's not it's not but it is. Pers- it's like it is at the same time. Yeah, it's because it's like this removed thing that they've had to, to cope in those these ways. Right. Like they have to change their mind to start thinking like this. Of course, he's sad that his friend's going to die. But ultimately, if his friend could leave something behind that would help him, he thinks that that would be for the best. It's that definitely was a moment that stood out to me, too. It's really it's really sad. And they like run to try to find help. And ultimately, when they get back, he's dead. And they're they're talking about basically if they don't get the shoes, then like the orderlies will take them off his body. And before they even know it. Right. He he goes and like sits with him. And there's a line where he talks about how like the skeleton is working its way through. And it just like it was really horrific the way he was describing this guy's slow death. And the whole time he's telling him like, you know, oh, you're going to go to this other place where you're going to be able to like see the forest and breathe fresh air and you're going to recover. It's going to be okay. He's like lying to him basically, even though he can see that he's clearly dying. Um, And so like, yeah, we immediately are just met with this tragedy. And, And I think there's a line where he even says like everybody who supports everybody in the world should be made to like walk by this guy's um, bed and see this 19 year old boy who's dying and doesn't want to be dying um, because that's how horrific it is to him. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really powerful. And we end up, the other big part of this is um, um, Himmelstoss, I guess is his name. That was the, that was the drill sergeant. 
Um, they do get, they end up like beating this guy. They like wrap him in a blanket and like beat him, punch him, put a cushion on top of him. Um, and they kind of get the better of him and then they, they leave him. And it's like the sort of way they kind of conquer him. They go to the front and then they are just hit with like, this is our first time we get, we get dropped into it. And man, this book is written in present tense. And I think it, it is to great effect because especially when we got to the front, it felt so immediate and it really transported me there. Um, just so many just horrific, gruesome details. Well, this is the graveyard too, right? Yeah. Should we, should we talk is... about that? So that that was another thing that really struck me is like he describes it as like they're using the coffins and dead bodies of, of people in, in this graveyard to like cover themselves. And the way that these people, I, I think there was like soldiers' bodies that they were using as well. And, and Paul found himself. Yeah. So it's about, a graveyard of other dead soldiers getting is getting like unearthed by the shelling. And Paul ca- was thinking of himself as like this, this soldier is saving his life from beyond the grave. Yeah. And I thought that that was something there's something really powerful to that, too. And what you you as a soldier in the trenches and in these th- this graveyard scenario have to to basically like up heave someone's grave and do something that's that's like it's hallowed ground and you're you're having to do that and have put a dead body on you just to survive and anything for survival right it's just horror after horror after horror honestly and like i again like i could go back and like reread these passages and really try and like let it sink in but like it just kind of washed over me at a certain point and like you know you got these disemboweled horses you got you know the gas and like how horrifying that is when that kind of comes in and they have to put on the mask and they talk about how like some some guys just take their masks off too early because they see people walking above above ground with their masks off and they think oh i can take it off but they don't realize that like the gas settles into the holes and so they take it off and get like a lethal dose uh just how horrific that is like people dying like th- there's like they hear people just dying out in no man's land and they can't do anything about it um man is it's it's just again just horror after horror and this is just our first sort of um introduction to it um it describes the gas as like a big soft jellyfish that floats into the shell hole and lulls there obscenely um so it's just like i i thought it was beautifully written in a horrific way um and it's really striking yeah so there's these talks about the recruits who start showing up and how they lose their minds. They're on, they're not used to anything and they have to look to them and they have this like relative knowledge just because they've been on the front for like a certain amount of time. Um, and they're able to, you know, convey their knowledge unto them. Like how, like how, like what, what certain shells sound like when you can tell what kind of gas it is and how dangerous it is. Like, um, and and he talks about how like some recruits are just like so brave they charge over the front they get they immediately die he's like they die like ten to one of like at a rate of like ten to one to other veterans who are there and this is the first time that he's sort of starting to already address like how these younger soldiers are coming on they're they're trained for less time they're younger they're less experienced and then they like you said they die at like ten to one rates and how like the the seasoned of them are starting to wane and like when that happens you have you're just throwing you know men to to into a problem and and like it's it's interesting to think because like it gets into how eventually the german equipment starts to break down and how they're kind of technologically outmatched and and this is the starting that up early in the story where their their scene is like they're this basically the same age as these kids who show up and their scene is like the seasoned like yeah. veterans just because they've been on the front for you know however long yeah 
Man, it's uh, it's amazing, right? There's there's lines about how you know he says like if your own father came over, you would not hesitate to fling a bomb at him. He talks about how like they become animals and they're just like they're just fighting. And he says we destroy and kill to save ourselves, to save ourselves and be revenged. Um, so they're fighting to like avenge like their compatriot who just died, but like that's it. Like they're not there on some grand reason. It's just like oh my friend just got killed, so now I'm gonna attack. And so it becomes like this animalistic, um, just just brutal violence. And then at one point after it's over, he's like, gradually we became something like men again. Um, and, and like how there's this like coming down off of it and, and reverting and realizing like, oh, we are we are actually people. We're not animals. And this gets into like, so the war, the, the war element of the story is we've heard horrors like this before. These are very specific and, and like hyper real and, and it sounds like they're stories from real accounts. But we also get the other side of the coin, like I, like I mentioned earlier, is that we get to see the brotherhood of these people together and what they mean to each other as a family. And some of these scenes, one, one that comes up is this goose. They go, oh, yeah. first of all, so after they beat this, this drill instructor, the one who was kind of behind it. He had like a bedwetting problem and he would put one of one of Paul's friends, one of Paul's friends. Right. And there was another person that also was wetting the bed. And so this drill instructor thought that he could break their habit by putting them on bunk beds, one on top of the other and sw swapping each night. And so they were constantly like, you know, peeing on each other. So they they get this guy back. What a, what a what a interesting, like, like almost like childlike thing, right, to have happening. I wonder if that specific detail was chosen for that reason makes them seem like little boys i mean they are right yeah. it's like yeah it definitely feels that way um so this instructor who forced that on this character uh they they beat the drill instructor and then he gets put in like two-day prison for or two-day jail for it and which is basically like a chicken coop and then at the same time paul and cat go and steal geese in order to like cook them and have themselves a nice meal. And these are the moments where you get to see them being like mischievous, but also like you're pulling for them and Their you're happy for right? them. Their friendship and you're happy for them to have these moments of of humanity to have. These it's moments clear that of, that camaraderie is like the only thing they have. It's what they and, and and they are closer to each other than you can ever be um, in, a, in a sort of normal society, right? Like that's just the nature of going through something traumatic is that it will sort of give you that closeness um, to somebody else um, and how that is, even that they lose throughout the course of this book as we get to like, that's not enough as much as we yeah. look at that. Um, well, and because it's fragile, right? Like it's a fragility that, that you're, these people will probably more than likely die. You know, there's in that brotherhood will be broken by that. And, and it's just statistics and, and how, it's it's almost impossible for all of them to make it out. So with this this meal that they have, I was noticing the commentary being made here is like these are the things that when you boil it down to our base instincts is like survival, right? And and like the the base joys are like this home cooked meal that they don't get from their rations, and the way that like they kind of live for this. And throughout the story, we continue to see that being important to them is like the the comforts of home. They're looking for for more in life than just the necessity you know they're looking for the finer things they're looking for things to enjoy in life right yeah yeah it's like are they finding joy in simple things that they haven't like had access to so let's let's um move on to the next part of the book here uh where we get into some of the specific kind of stuff 
So Paul visits home, and the contrast with civilian life highlights the cost of the war on his psyche. The town has not changed since he went off to war, but he has. He finds that he, quote, does not belong here anymore. It is a foreign world. He feels disconnected from most of the townspeople. His father asks him, quote, stupid and distressing questions about his war experiences, not understanding that a man cannot talk of such things. An old schoolmaster lectures him about strategy and advancing to Paris while insisting that Paul and his friends know only their, quote, own little sector of the war, but nothing of the bigger picture. Indeed, the only person he remains connected to is his dying mother, with whom he shares a tender yet restrained relationship. The night before he is to return from leave, he stays up with her, exchanging small expressions of love and concern for each other. Paul is eventually glad to return and reunite with his comrades. Um, so yeah, this whole, this whole leave part, um, is, is a really interesting one. And it was maddening to have him being lectured by that schoolmaster about how like, oh, you don't understand the war. Like you don't understand the bigger picture and you just want to like throttle the guy. Um, I think this is the guy who basically convinced them all to join up too. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, and that's obviously making a commentary of a certain type of person too. Like there's, there's tons of people. This was very controversial by the way. A lot of people saw this as an attack on like the older generation and they didn't like that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, difficult when you convince somebody to do something like this that will like fundamentally change their life and how, you know, you open yourself up to criticism from the person who goes through it. Right. And saying like, you're telling me to do something that you yourself haven't done. Well, and his dad, like wanting to know if he's ever been in hand to hand combat, which is, you know, a horrifying thing to ask somebody. And I think we have more awareness of this now because of art like this and, and other films and things that have like kind of reminded us of, of you know, how horrifying this can be. But I I love that that also sort of um, foreshadows something that's going to come later in the book, which we'll get to at the end here. But I mean, this this is tragic because like all he wants to do when he's out there on the front is be home and he yearns for home and then he comes home and then he's like, I want to be where I belong, which he realizes where he belongs because he yearns to get back to his friends and he yearns to get back to the front. He said, I should have never come on leave is what he says. And it's it's tragic to hear that because you know, of course, it's like, no, that isn't true, man. But you can see why he feels that way when he's surrounded by people like this. And then also just the distance he feels. And like the only people who understand what he's been through are the people who are fighting right now and who he's like, I want to get back to them because they're going through it. And, you know, he that that camaraderie and that empathy he feels for his, you know, compatriots on the front lines. It's powerful. I also think it's interesting to note like him and his mother, obviously, people have close connections with their mother usually and they're both facing something that could possibly lead to their deaths so for him to you know for him them to be having these these moments they kind i I think his mother can almost kind of understand because she's facing a possible death as well um so in that way like not only is she his mother but he is able to kind of you know he's able to like say like you know we're both going to make it through this. And that's like, hopefully that's the hope that they have is that like both of them can, can confront these conflicts that they're going through. Yeah, man. Um, it's powerful for him to sort of also get a moment to try and contextualize what he's been through and to, to reckon with it in some way. And he sort of realizes that he can't. Um, and, and one of the lines I wrote down um, was, was about that. And he says, terror can be endured so long as a man simply ducks but it kills if a man thinks about it. And that's the way he's recognizing how like now that he's had time to think about it, he can't just react as he does on the battlefield or he's just ducking, he's just surviving. 
when he has a moment to think about it, that's when it gets real and it gets it gets really horrifying. And it brings up the other side, right? This idea of PTSD and how he he is grappling Which with for the, 1928, man. That's just so ahead of its time. Yeah, and he's grappling with the fact that he can't think about the things that he's doing. And he's he's like, oh, I need to shut myself off from this stuff in order to to survive and and keep going. Says, and keep it'll going kill him if he thinks about it. But and, and that's one of the, the tragic things about PTSD, right? And one of the ways to heal through it is to like be able to discuss it but how it can be dangerous and how like you really probably should talk to a professional because that is a really fraught conversation and it's, it's can be very scary and it can bring up things and sort of re-traumatize uh, depending on how it's handled. Um, and, and it's such a huge issue with war veterans, um, which, you know, it's, it's tr- truly heartbreaking. All right, let's get to the last section here. So soon after returning to the front, he volunteers to go on a patrol and kills a man in hand-to-hand combat for the first time. He watches the man die slowly in agony for hours. He is remorseful and devastated, asking for forgiveness from the man's corpse. He later confesses to Kat and Albert, who try to comfort him and reassure him that it is only part of the war. Afterward, they are sent on what Paul calls a, quote, good job. They must guard a supply depot in a village that was evacuated due to being shelled too heavily. During this time, the men are able to adequately feed themselves, unlike the near starvation conditions in the German trenches. In addition, the men enjoy themselves while living off the spoils from the village and the officers' luxuries from the supply depot, such as fine cigars. While evacuating the village, enemy civilians, Paul and Albert are taken by surprise by artillery fired at a civilian convoy and are wounded by a shell. On the train back home, Albert takes a turn for the worse and cannot complete the journey and is instead sent off the train to recuperate in a Catholic hospital. By a combination of bartering and manipulation, Paul manages to stay together with Albert. Albert eventually has his leg amputated while Paul is deemed fit for service and returned to the front. By now, the war is nearing its end and the German army is retreating. In despair, Paul watches as his friends fall one by one. Kat's death is the last straw that finally causes Paul to lose his will to live. In the final chapter, he comments that peace is coming soon, but he does not see the future as bright and shining with hope. Paul feels that he has no aims left in life and that their generation will be different and misunderstood. In October 1918, Paul is finally killed on a remarkably peaceful day. The situation report from the front line states a simple phrase, all quiet on the Western Front. Paul's corpse displays a calm expression on its face as, quote, as though almost glad the end had come. Big subversion here in having the main character die. That is very unusual. I mean, it, it, it sort of casts this as a tragedy in this, a Shakespearean sense. So, it's, of course, this kind of thing has been done before. But I think it was, it's kind of unexpected, uh, especially because if you're reading a first person account of a you know, war, it seems like that person survived. Right. But uh, Paul does not survive this book. And I did not necessarily see that coming no i mean it, it definitely felt to me that he was going to be the only to survive and the right. only to continue on but um if we're going to talk about the end and then kind of work our way back the way that it shifts um perspective was was one of the biggest things that that shook me here at the end is it kind it feels like the beginning of this chapter is like saying you know he's grappling with this he's again looking at sort of pastoral nature it's this great day. He's realizing the war is coming to an end, which again, that's 
the tragedy of it is knowing that everyone was so close to survival. Yeah, he, he, it's like a it's like a month before the armistice or something is when he dies. And, and, but like all of his friends as well, like Cat is this yeah, character he's come die. to love, and he sees him as a mentor, and and he's the last to go, and yeah. it's heartbreaking. They all die, and it's kind of like in summary, he's like, ah, oh, and then he died on this day, and then this other guy died, and, this other, and it's like all the characters just die almost off page. Yeah, and it makes their deaths even more tragic in a sense yeah or just like meaningless yeah well and that's the i think that's the point right is is that like it's it feels that way when when everyone they survive so much and then they just to and then they just die especially paul right paul paul's death is is on a all quiet on the western front kind of day it's a very calm day nothing else is going on and it goes to show the context like we kind of switch into this military um like reporting paragraph at the end where everything's been from his perspective and then it shifts perspective and it shows like the removed nature of how the army views these soldiers of like you know we had 15 soldiers die or whatever overall all quiet here on the western front yeah like it wasn't a big deal yeah it was it was it was basically nothing and and the, that way that perspective shift of of it being like a third person view on Paul's death. That's become like a phrase now, by the way, you know, much like we've talked about in other coverage. Um, that, that's like a common phrase now to mean sort of a misleading statement about something being quiet when it's really maybe not or, or there's really like a sinister undertone. It's to like an it. eerie sort of calm, calm yeah. before the storm kind of thing, possibly, yeah. but unknown, be, yeah. not very sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's move back, though, to because one of my favorite parts of the story is where they get to live this like they they live this life of luxury at the and and they're getting to make all this food and they get this de- in this depot and there's this scene where Paul stays behind and like cooks his pancakes as shells are falling around him yeah. and this idea of like these comforts these comforts that they've come to enjoy are worth dying for and how it was almost comedic the way that he was he, he everyone's running and he's like I got to finish my pancakes yeah. and he runs with the plate and gets he doesn't drop a single pancake and he gets back into the bunker in time that push again for for these comforts and this normalcy of life and they've found like a way to be comfortable in a war together in this like somewhat removed way it's not quite like right on the front but it kind of shows how it's just their life now right yeah. like cuz they're there for years and it's like you can't you can't sustain you know aggression that long so there's going to be moments like this where you're just trying to cook breakfast I, I just found that that moment to be all of that to be this where you just would hope that you could take this snapshot this moment in time and freeze it and all these people are still all of his his people are most of his friends are still alive and if they could just somehow remove all of the war and they could all like still have lives and meaningful relationships together and and just have these simple simple things like that that's all these people yearn for at the end of the day and and again that that moment really did make me laugh where he's running with his pancakes through a <laughs> war zone yeah in a in a very dark book that that's like haunting it, it really was a moment of levity yeah man so the part i want to focus on is how i think the pr- the interaction with the prisoners also goes along with the hand to hand combat in the sense that and I feel like that's kind of the climax of the book in many ways. Um, it's about recognizing that the people on the other side are just like you and how he starts to feel empathy and pity for them, the prisoners, right? And how seeing they're just hungry and looking at them and realizing that they look like peasants, they look a lot like us. Um, and then like the weird way he feels conflicted about that and how like, he feels like they're the enemy and they've killed so many of us and we've killed so many of them. 
Um, and then that all leads again to another horrific battle sequence where he's trapped in the shell hole by himself and he can hear his friends like on the line, but like he, that's how close they are. And yet he can't get to them. He's trapped in the shell hole and he's waiting there and like he hears the enemy. And then, of course, like one of them jumps into the hole to hide and he ends up killing him, stabbing him, um, not killing him right away. And he actually like the next morning. The guy's still alive. He's actually caring for him. Yeah, he starts ca- trying to kind of care for him because he's worried he's going to get... Ca- I mean, he has empathy. It's, it's about like the devel- developing empathy for your enemy, right? And I have a, I have a paragraph here I want to read um, that I thought was pretty striking from this moment. So he says, quote, But now for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us, that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death, and the same dying and same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? A couple of deep things happen here, right? Like we've had this mention of hand-to-hand combat, and it has been this removed war, right? It's trench warfare. They're shelling. They're shooting from afar. They're throwing, you know, there's gas everywhere. And then he gets into this hole and he's hand-to-hand combat. He stabs someone. That's a very intimate way of killing yeah. someone. And, and it takes him to, like a day to die. Yeah. So and, and he realizes as he's in there in this hole, I think he's giving him water, trying to bandage him. Trying From to like care- the bottom of the hole, which is really grody, but like he's yeah. trying best he can. In that way, he starts to develop, like like you said. And he, I think after he dies, he sees like his name in the wallet, a picture of his wife, like all of these things that... And he tells himself he's going to like contact her, but then he realizes that he never will and... All this stuff, and and yeah. this goes back to what you're talking about with the Russian prisoners as well, because he's he's seeing them as human beings. He's like, oh, they're they're just like us. They're you know, these poor bastards are just like us. And then they're playing music. And that really affects him when they start playing violin, I think, or something like that. He realizes like there's a even though they don't speak the same languages, there's this mutual language of music and humanity and and like, again, these things in life that that you you can overlook at times like food and music and but but it's it's a way to to live in the moment it's a way to appreciate the life that you've been given so i i just found a lot of that stuff to be really powerful throughout yeah man and we've already talked about how this ends right him him dying is a a true gut punch um there's just so much it feels like we're kind of barely scratching the surface um and and you could really dig into a lot of these scenes. I could quote, there's so many more quotes that would be worth reading. Um, it's really amazingly written. Um, I, I, I just love the writing here. Yeah, it's very powerful. It, it, it reminds me of some, and I think it being, have you read um, Night by Eli Wiesel? Eli Wiesel, yeah. That, it, it reminds me in ways of uh, something like that, like something that's similar to what someone went through, whether it's fiction or, or nonfiction. I have that book on my shelf and I haven't read it, but I need to. Having it, we, that is one that I read in school, actually. Yeah. It's so powerful. It's such a powerful story. And so is this in, in the same vein of like. That one's about the Holocaust. Right. right. And it changes the way that you think about the world and what human beings can overcome and what they've been, what people have gone through and how even through all of this, the the things that we, like I said, maybe take for granted can be important. And, and the way that we're more similar than we are different and all of the things that we've all heard before, but here seeing it put to put forth in, in a format like this, where it, it just builds on you and builds on you in a really powerful way and then and then delivers a gut punch at the end. It, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it encompasses all of the human experience, the tragedy, the joy, the 
the what human beings are capable on both spectrums of evil and and good and heroism and cowardice and that these stories really i guess stick with me and, and will stick with me and feel as important as they are and powerful because of the the way that they encompass all of that and in something that feels otherworldly like war or a concentration camp totally man it's this this book was incredible and i just keep thinking about how he set us up with a lot of Paul thinking about later life and how he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to ever find happiness again. I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to feel a part of society, how none of us are going to be able to like grow past this. We're going to be this disconnected generation. And we feel like that is his fate is he's going to be this like lost generation ghost of a person who's struggling to find happiness again. And he even thinks like, maybe I will, maybe one day I'll be able to find my way back to, to like a peace and happiness. And that just makes it all the more brutal when he dies. Because as tragic as that outcome is, we realize that that is still so much better than what the people who just die get. And to have the main character end up just dying and have that even taken away from him. I think really underlines the brutality of it. It's the reality of what could have happened. I like that he's highlighting too what happens to those who come home, but also the the tragedy and and the realistic portrayal is that most didn't. Yeah, those are the lucky ones. Even even still, yeah, man. Um, I I'm so interested to see what a modern adaptation of this does because obviously there was this really historically important adaptation made in the 30s. Um, and, you know, a different time in filmmaking, obviously. And why, you know, why did, did, you know, a filmmaker feel like this is an important story to do today? I'm curious to see that. German filmmaker, by the way. Good. You know, and I hope that they are able to keep the message of this book intact. And like I said, I'm going to be on the lookout for this needs to feel like an anti-war war movie. It needs to be at its core a message of this is awful and not worth it and it's a tragedy and i'm gonna you know i'll i will that will be something that will frustrate me if, if i start to get a sense any sort of sense that like you know what they're doing is is in some way justified or we should be happy about or or whatever like that would go against the spirit of the book for me yeah i i agree i would agree with you if that was the case i haven't seen it but that's not the i think that we'll be happy with the the adaptation yeah. process i i don't suspect they go that route <laughs> well I, you know i i from the reputation this movie seems to have um I'm, I'm excited to get into it man um but wow this book is so good this movie's going to have to be truly amazing to to be able to stand up to it but maybe it is i mean this this uh, the fact that i hadn't read this book is, is wild and and now it, it feels like like i said night by Eli Wiesel, I think his name is, or Eli. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but yeah. Or like the Diary of Anne Frank. These are things that mm. happen. Like these are things that are that are like we hold on to these as the snapshots that we get of th things that happen to people in these moments of tragedy. Um, and yeah, this one, this one, I'm just adding to the list of. Uh, it's almost indescribable how important it feels to because it's it's the messaging of a of a generation too the the voice of a generation that didn't get to tell a story that didn't get to impact the world in the ways that could have been just a truly important book right like you can tell and he pulled no punches like this book is so brutal and so unflinching and just perfectly crafted to do the thing he wants it to do um i'm really impressed with this book honestly
Agreed. And and the writing as well, right? It's not just the story that's being told, it's the way that the writing articulated it as well. It feels like the kind of book that no matter how much time passes, as long as human beings exist, they'll be looking back at this material to, I hope, to continue to be anti-war human beings. Yeah, to learn from the mistakes of our past and to, to try and make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, wow. Uh, so... If you enjoyed this episode, us talking about All Quiet on the Western Front, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. It's a great way to get the word out and let other people know that our podcast is worth listening to. And uh, make sure to check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. It's a great way to support us and you get to listen to our bonus content. We put out one episode a month, typically something adjacent to a project we've already covered. So in this case, we possibly will be doing the other version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, it's high on my list at this point, man. I'm interested. And connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. Add Ink to Film on all of those or or just search Ink to Film and you'll find us. Uh, We'd love to have you follow us. Um, We put out different content on all those platforms, um, short video clips on on TikTok and on YouTube shorts. Um, So check that out. We'd love to have, uh, have you follow us in other places. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Uh, All that's left is to watch this film now. I am so excited but also like girding myself because i'm like this is probably going to be a really harrowing watch it's going to be heavy it should be it should be i mean i feel like even the experience of reading this book i feel you know yeah somber i feel very like i'm i I think that's the right way to think about war and um i'm honestly really just happy with this book in the sense that i think it nails it and um i really hope that the movie does the same thing so i'm excited to watch it All right, until next time, keep adapting. Mm